Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive, you can thrive from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We have the marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have folks who help others create their businesses, and we have the do-it-yourselfers who like to have your own hands on the levers. If you, like me, are one or more of the above, in fact, some of our listeners who tune in every week are all of the above, take a moment, explore episodes, discover how we serve you at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on your favorite network, such as iTunes. Every five-star rating helps us serve more business creators just like you, and and when you subscribe, you'll get immediate access to over 260 episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to business creators just like you, in addition to fresh content that propagates out every single week. It doesn't get any better than that. The Business Creators Radio Show has been on the air for over five years, bringing you weekly content, and we are so proud of the role that we've been able to play in the entrepreneurial community, helping business creators just like you serve from an overflowing cup. When this gentleman that I'm about to introduce to you came across my desk in terms of a request to be on the Business Creators Radio Show, I immediately reached out to my production assistant and I said, get this man on our show right now. This is exactly who we need on the Business Creators Radio Show. All of our guests are awesome. It's not too often I have that level of reaction to it. And let me tell you a little bit about him. His name is Richard Nongard, and he's an expert in business leadership and business psychology who, like me, is right here in Las Vegas. He started out in car sales in the early 1980s and parlayed his sales experience into leadership experience by moving on as an entrepreneur and executive in both the healthcare and educational sectors. sectors. <laughs> he's a licensed psychotherapist who views his training and counseling as a degree in problem-solving. Richard is also a serial entrepreneur, and he's owned several restaurants and multi-million dollar e-commerce platforms. He shares a pathway of engaging community, changing culture, and building identity as the formula for leadership and business results. And what Richard Nongard is going to share with us today are many morsels of brilliance in the areas of leadership, buy-in, and learning Chinese to get a date. If you're intrigued as I am, then you're going to be excited when I say, Richard Nongard, come on in. The weather's fine. The weather is actually perfect here, so uh, it's great to be on your show, and absolutely fantastic to speak to all your awesome guests. Absolutely. So, Richard, what I like to do here, and you may have heard some of our episodes or at least heard about the Business Creators Radio Show, is by this point in the show, typically some of our listeners have opened a separate browser tab, and they're looking you up. They're looking up your topics, right. and they're trying to get to know a little bit more about you. As always, we read out your official biography, very impressive, but what I'd like to do before we get into the main topics of what we're going to cover today, leadership, buy-in, and learning Chinese to get a date. Oh, I can't wait to hear about that one. But first, tell us a little bit about just your, your personal experiences and what drove you down the path of your trajectory to where you are today serving business creators in the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Sure. When I open up the other browser tab and, and, and Google me, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, this guy's a, a famous hypnotist. 
And the reality yeah. is I actually used to perform the stage hypnosis shows back in the day at the Riviera Hotel, and I used to fill in at some of the other venues for some of the other stage hypnosis shows. And uh, and I got to where I am today probably because I started out as an entrepreneur when I was seven or eight, and I sold Olympic greeting cards door to door. Uh, my father had left the family, and uh, my mom was working two jobs, and I saw an ad in the back of a comic book that said, you know, make money selling selling greeting cards. And so I, I signed up and I went door to door. That lit the entrepreneurial fire. And even though my mother made me go to uh, grad school and get a real job, um, uh, <laughs> uh, and I became a psychotherapist, I've always had, had my hand in the entrepreneurial and the, uh, the business side of things as well. Right. And, you know, uh, I, I don't want to get into because I know there are questions about you know who's a great hypnotist and who's not a great hypnotist. So I don't know where any of our listeners stand on this, but I know I discovered the power of this myself. It was maybe about oh goodness, it was nine years ago. Wow, I'm dating myself here. Nine years ago, I was at uh, one of Armin Morin's big seminar events, and. At that particular event, he had Marshall Silver as one of his guest presenters. Now, in addition sure. to doing a guest presentation, Marshall Silver also did a demo, and I volunteered to be on stage, so I figured, hey, what the heck? So Marshall brings us up on stage, and he tests us to determine which of us are susceptible. Now, I don't want to take more than a few seconds on this because this is the Richard Nongard hour, but I just want to share my personal relationship to everything that we're, we're dealing with here is I was identified through one of the signature Marshall Silver demos as the Queeblian translator. And I found out how susceptible I was to, in a good way, to hypnosis and suggestion. And when I told people this story, they said, yeah, I've known that about you for a long time. You give <laughs> off tells. Okay, so I give off tells. That led me to discover the power of this to change our perceptions, change the way we view the world, and change the way we navigate. Now, one other bonus, and this is just a little freebie for all of our listeners. At the end of the demo, it was right before dinner time, and Marshall assigned me, the Queeblian translator, and the Queeblian alien, who I was the only person who understood Queeblian and can translate into English, to stand at the door and greet everybody as they were leaving. The Queeblian didn't want to do it, thought they were silly. Me, the Queeblian translator, I went up there and I shook every single hand like I was running for president. And there you go. I, to this day, some of the friendships that occur to me regularly, the people I connect with regularly, some folks who uh, I've had the opportunity to be of service to and have had the opportunity to be of service to me, I met because I shook everybody's hand as they left that room, and there were about 800 people in the room. Never miss an opportunity to get in front of an audience for free. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Marshall's been a fixture in Las Vegas hypnosis. I've known him for many years. He's a fantastic yeah. guy. And what Marshall's done is he's, through an entertainment venue, showed people the power of their mind in order to change their experience, their outlook, and their profitability in business. And he trains business people as a, as a day job, if you will, even though his right. shows have made him millions of dollars over the years. And that's what I've done as well. You know, I view my master's degree in counseling as a, 
as a uh, as a problem solving degree, and that led me to the path of discovering hypnosis, and that's where we unleash the creative power of the subconscious mind. We think of hypnosis like a stage hypnosis show like Marshall's, or we think of it like the movie Office Space, you know, with Jennifer Aniston. But the reality, yeah. all of us experience hypnosis every day in that we respond to suggestion. The whole advertising uh, industry is built on that. But the most powerful suggestions that we act on are the suggestions we give ourselves. And unfortunately, in business, far too many people are, uh, are, are buying into their own limiting beliefs and not unleashing their greatest potential in building a successful business. Yeah, and that's very sad, and I see it all the time, sometimes even in myself. And it's my belief that I can say things like that because self-awareness is key to identifying your path to success. And when you're aware of yourself, you can be aware, aware on behalf of others and be of more service to them. Absolutely. You know, I, I became really interested in the subject of leadership. When I did my doctorate, I did not want to do more of the same and do a doctorate in counseling. So I did a doctorate in leadership, uh, specifically in transformational leadership. And the idea of leadership is really, uh, of, of effective leadership, is about transforming ourselves first by acting on our giftedness. So we have the ability to interact with others in a way that causes them to want to follow. And the outcome is whether that follower is an employee or whether that follower is our first customer. Sales leadership is a very important concept. Um, we, we build those relationships, we create those communities, and we, uh, we, we create thriving businesses. Yeah, I think that's very true. So what I'd like to do now, and I'm glad we agree on that, and I think many of our listeners may be able to find some value in what you just shared, is you gave us some information in the green room to guide us through what you're going to share with us today. And some of these things are just fun. And I want to start with us having a little bit of fun before we start to get into cultural competencies and leadership and buy-in and such. So you got to tell us, why did you learn Chinese to get a date? So you live in Las Vegas, I live in Las Vegas, and you know that as long as you speak Chinese or Spanish, you can live your life in Las Vegas, and you actually never need to learn English if you uh, if you speak, speak as a first language, either Spanish or Chinese. Huge Spanish community, um, uh, speaking community, huge Chinese speaking community. Uh, I'm pretty good with languages. Um, uh, I, I speak uh, enough Russian to get around if I have to, and and uh, and I had a. a at the time, I had a uh, an electrical engineer work for me who was Chinese, and just being interested in languages, I would look up words and I would learn learn things, and I would I would speak to him, and and uh, I, w I was here in Las Vegas, and I ran into a lady who um, was very nice, and she was she was she was beautiful, and I thought I'd kind of like to go out with her, and so I started talking to her, and she said, Oh no, I can't talk to you, I don't speak any English. It was interesting because at that particular time, I had had throat surgery. Uh, I had had a, a number of throat surgeries, and I was still in the recovery phase. So I jokingly said to her, well, I don't speak English either, because I couldn't talk. I couldn't speak. Um, it, it affected my voice to an extent that I really couldn't have a conversation of any length or duration. <clears throat> so I whipped out the translator and started talking to her using Google Translate, which I think she thought was both odd, cute, and funny, but we hit it off, and uh, and so I uh, 
I, again, I had learned a few words here and there in, in Chinese and had some interest in it over the past several years. But I went home that night. I hired a, te- a tutor in Beijing who I met online. I bought all the Pimsleur uh, and Rosetta Stone uh, software. And I told my, my engineer, who you know was really my right-hand man in the, in the business, I, I said, Sean, you uh, you got to do all the work the rest of the week because I'm doing nothing but learning Chinese. So I spent the next three days with my tutor in Beijing and my online software, and I went back and I asked her about Chinese, and uh, she yeah. said, okay. All right. And so, so I've been studying Chinese every single day ever since, and that's been um, almost three years. Wow. So what I heard in that is that you've been – to China, which is great, and been to China a couple times. It, yeah, yeah, great, 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 and so you know, I can it is very my Chinese. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's also very true, and this is something you just don't hear much about that Las Vegas does, in fact, have a very significant Chinese population. Not only does it have a quote-unquote Chinatown, like so many towns do, but the Chinese population here is influential enough that they have their own political movements. I mean, uh, sure. yeah, it's uh, you're very you're very right about that, and that's one of those things that is just so underreported that I only discovered once I got here and managed to spend some time here and get to know some people. So it's just that awareness of some of the opportunities that are right there in your midst. But going back to the fact that you've been to China and you've dealt with Chinese culture, what does your experience in China tell you? about doing business right here in hometown America. I think this will be a great segue into cultural competencies. You know, here's the deal. We have a 200-year tradition or 250-year tradition of business in America. There are products right. that we use every day, Colgate Toothpaste, Hartford, Hartford uh, Brace Collins Publishing Company. You know, there are newspapers that are, are, are 200 years old. There are inns. So there, there's a, a hotel in in Maine that's, you know, older than the USA. Um, and, and we think in terms of this being, you know, really old stuff, you know, if we go to Williamsburg, Virginia and walk around the, the tourist area or, you know, we go to the East Coast and we're just, just amazed by those buildings that were built in the 1700s. But you have yeah. to recognize China's had a um, a uh, uh, a business tradition for 6,000 years. Correct. Yeah. And and if you look at the economic history of the planet, other than the last 200 years, China was the number one economic powerhouse. You know, let's just call it the the, the previous you know 3,000 years. Um, this 200-year period has been an aberration. But as we see in every journal, from the Harvard Business Review to the Wall Street Journal to you know Business Week to any you know. The, Fox News, CNBC, you know, CNN, uh, they're all, of right. course, reporting on the economic might of China. And the reality is China has almost 2 billion people. And uh, other than the last 200 years being an aberration, they are poised to be the economic leader once again for the next 3,000 years. So as a, as a business person in, you know, anywhere USA, you have to really ask yourself two things. And, and number one is, um, what can I learn from a 3,000-year tradition or 6,000-year tradition of business? Um, because that has been the fabric that has created their long-term success as the global economic leader, and which they which they will be undisputably again in the next you know 25 to 50 years. Uh, the second thing is as a local 
person. I want. I want to know. Th- I want to know this, um, because there's such a, a, a powerful economic power. Um, how can my business take advantage of opportunity as a result of uh, the Chinese economy? Can I acquire products at a lower rate? Is there a new market for me to sell into and to export? Um, but even if we don't actually do business with the East, the reality is some of the some of the strategies and the techniques that have created that sustaining business work even in the local pizza shop or for the guy who owns a construction company or a person like me who owns an online retailer providing continuing education to mental health professionals. Um, because those strategies are truly effective communication strategies and strategies for business. Yeah, and I think that tells us a lot about how cultural companies aren't just international, especially when it's in your own backyard and even when it's, you know, in places like your pizza shop. I mean, I've worked in food service and you have everything there. It's not just flipping burgers or putting sauce on the pizza or something like that. So uh, here's a couple other things we wanted to cover here, one of which is, is you wanted to share with us some things that we need to know, especially when it comes to merging teams and changing management. And more than ever in the environment of business, the only constant is change. And I do a lot of work in change management myself. Change management is a discipline. And when you look at what change management is, it has a lot to do with affecting the culture because in many ways culture actually drives the ability to affect change or not. So this is a great way to dive even deeper into cultural competency. So what do we need to know when we get into mergers and management changes? Peter Drucker famously said that. He said that uh, uh, a culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's my my favorite Peter Drucker quote of all time. And it's absolutely true. So, you know, back to China and Chinese business, um, what we have is we have the sense that Cross-cultural engagement means so dealing with people from a different ethnic or a different religious or a different racial background. The reality is there are uh, cultural differences that go far beyond our typical understanding, our intergenerational differences, the millennials, the boomers, the Xers, all working together in business or as customers. Um, sometimes there are people who don't look very much like me, but we have very much in common because of our uh, economic, um, our, our economic parity, um, or educational parity. And so people equate culture often with religion, language, or, or ethnicity. But the reality is every company has a culture. So when, when small bank, small rural bank, let's call it 17 rural banks, gets bought up yep. by the, by the urban bank that has three branches in an urban area and 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 those management teams and frontline employees uh, have to begin working together as one organization. The same skills that we would use in cross-cultural counseling are the same skills that we would use in um, in in corporate coaching, in bringing leadership teams together. I was working with a company not too long ago where the the the, the old CEO 
uh, of the company that was bought out stayed on board and became the COO of the new company. So you had 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 the COO of the of the old company and the CEO of the new company working together, uh, but they didn't work well together because their uh, style of management, the way they engaged teams, the way they communicated uh, their their vision and ideas were were completely different. And how do you how do you bring that together? How do you how do you bring corporate cultures together? For everybody who's flown on American Airlines in the last three or four years, uh, or anyone who's flown on United Airlines in the previous three or four years, you know, you yeah. dealt with Continental being eaten up by uh, United and currently uh, American being eaten up by U.S. Air, and there's there's two different experiences, and you never know as a customer if you're going to get the U.S. Air experience or the American Airlines experience when you get on the plane, and that is bad for business. And I think it's directly tied to the the stock price, which has been declining recently of American Airlines, their inability to uh, uh, to, to to create a a new culture from the new uh, from from the new company that's been created. Right, and you know. What we also see, especially when it comes to airlines, is one of the challenges that airlines face is that time and time again, the consumers have spoken loud and clear and pretty much in one monolithic voice. And what they're saying is, what we care about most are cheaper, are cheaper fares. Now, how do you deliver quality service when the market demands cheaper fares? Just how do you do it? It's, it I mean, I, I never thought I'd see this because it seems to go counter to a lot of what we know about marketing, but people are happy to get nickel and dimes to feel like they're getting a big discount on their seat. You know, again, that's really a big issue, but Southwest and the airline industry is the one who's been able to prove that you can actually um, uh, you can actually drive up prices because of quality while maintaining the perception of being the uh, lowest cost carrier. I don't know if right. you've tried to buy a ticket recently, but I fly Southwest regularly, and sometimes I'm willing to pay Southwest more than the other airlines because they've made it so easy for me to fly them. As a as a business person, um, as a business person, um, uh, I, I want to be able to change my ticket without a fee. Uh, I don't want right. to lose my ticket when my meeting goes too far or too long. Uh, I don't want to have uh-huh. to count my bags three weeks in advance. And the, the the other airlines have all, of course, adopted the nickel and dime model, and uh, and and it's it's you know it's it's look at, look at the stock prices you know, look at the chart compare you know Southwest and compare it with uh, with American Airlines and you'll see that right. one airline is thriving and 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 my experience I, I haven't done a survey is that uh, Southwest is no longer the cheapest airline but they provide me the best value. And right. they do it consistently, and they do it with a yeah. smile. And in your line of work, some of the benefits that Southwest offers you are critical because you can run it because as a, as, a, as a consultant, as a coach, as a keynote speaker and a motivational speaker, these are things that require a lot of travel, and you can have things happen like the conference gets canceled a week beforehand because they finally gave up on trying to fill the room. That's probably happened to you whether they told you so or not. Or – you get booked at the last minute because an opening showed up and you need to jump in there and fly fly there. Or maybe you're on a consulting gig and they need you to stay an extra day or they're willing to pay you an extra day exactly. and you need to change that flight. These are very important to somebody in your line of work. And Southwest, yeah. unlike a lot of other airlines, recognizes that. 
they, they make it easy to work with. You know, I, what used to be important to me was upgrades, getting upgraded to first class. But what the major airlines have done is they've, re, they've added more seats. They've taken away first class seats. They've made upgrades uh, harder. So, um, like uh, like the agent said, the first time I checked into Southwest after many years of not flying them, oh, everybody's first class here, and uh, <laughs> and you know we know it's still uh, it's still a sardine can in the air, but it's a it's an enjoyable sardine can in the air, and they do have the the, the biggest pitch. They have a 32 inch pitch. I'm a guy who's over six feet tall. Uh, I like to have a little bit yeah. of leg room. I, I can't fly an airline with uh, with a 29 inch pitch. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're a big dude. It comes through to your pictures. I haven't met you in person yet. But yeah, <laughs> I, could, I, could, I, could, I couldn't see you squeezing in the coach. Uh, I'm kind of a big right, guy right, in the right. other direction, so same thing here. I, I am with you 100%. So, uh, you know, taking cultural competencies and looking a little bit into leadership now, uh, you have shared that transformational leadership is different from other forms of leadership. And why is that, and why is that important? Well, transformational leadership is really all about looking into myself first as a leader and transforming by using my giftedness in a way that can then be complementary with others and to help them explore their giftedness. The result is right. that we have a collaborative leadership style. It is very similar to a servant leadership style, um, and people are very familiar with that as well. But the, the transformational leadership style is one that's been, of course, we are well-researched at the university level. I, I wish that more people took leadership training classes because it, it actually is an academic discipline. And transformational leaders have tremendously powerful impact. Randy Dobbs, when he became the CEO of General Electric Capital Technology and Information Services um, uh, during the uh, Jack Welch era, uh, inherited the CEO uh, job of a General Electric company at, that was hemorrhaging money. And within right. a year, they were able to turn that around. And, and the $90 million profit is small in General Electric terms, at least, at least in that era. Um, but it was, it was a huge turnaround. He wrote a book titled Transformational Leadership, and, and his book has always been important to me in my work. In fact, I'm having lunch with him in, uh, in uh, Scottsdale next week because we're going to talk about right. doing some leadership training together on transformational leadership. But what he really stresses is when we create transformation, we have to create something sustaining by creating a cadre of other leaders. Um, our first follower becomes a co-leader, if you will. It, it, yeah. it, it starts a movement. And and that co-leader then is somebody who we can develop. So the, the change that we've made when the leader steps away, moves on, is, is out of town, retires, uh, whatever, uh, has left behind an organization that is not dependent on one main character, but instead is dependent on success at every level in the organization from the C-suite uh, to the, the the street sweeper, and you know it's interesting because I work mostly mostly with small businesses in my own work, and you want to talk about transformational leadership and getting people to adopt things. I have found that especially when you're doing change, and one of the biggest forms of change that my company deals with is getting people to follow specific processes uh, by by way of bringing minimalism in as a function to get maximum results. So in other words, what we do is we look at things that people should not be needing to discuss and not be needing to think about that could just be turned into a process 
that people follow step by step. And what that does is it expands the brain bandwidth to enable them to think strategically about the growth of the business and what can be done to uh, get more purchasers in, turn those purchasers into customers, uh, get more market share, innovate. Uh, I mean, I think you've seen this enough times where you'll be in corporate scenarios and they'll, you'll, you'll step away from your email for, for an hour and you'll come back and you'll find you've been CC'd on 19 steps of a thread that has nothing to do with you, number one. And number two, you're reading through it, and you still can't figure out why this is even being discussed. Sound familiar? Absolutely, and, and that's why I always encourage people, if, if you don't have a, a, an assistant who's sitting at the desk next to you, get a virtual assistant. Get somebody else yeah. uh, to bring you the messages so that you're only focusing on what's most important to you. You know, you highlighted something that's really a trap for many small businesses in particular. They don't want to miss the opportunity, so they want to try to do everything. As a result, right. they miss the opportunity to niche. Or, even more important than that, they miss the opportunity to really focus on what they do well. And, you know, I learned early on in business, um, do what you do best. Early on, for, for many years, we did training for chemical dependency counselors, social workers, marriage and family yep. therapists, and, uh, and, and professional counselors. And that was it. People said, what about teachers? What about respiratory therapists? What about, uh, what about, uh, psychologists? What about psychiatrists? What about, uh, these other disciplines? And over the years, we found a place for all of those disciplines. But early on, I needed to focus on the five groups that I did well with and become yeah. so proficient at that that before I moved on to other customer groups, that was on autopilot. And a lot of people fear if I don't jump in now, I'll lose the opportunity. But they lose the opportunity because they haven't been proficient. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And you know what I found? And this is very interesting. I'm in the process of changing my own branding to reflect this. For years, people have asked me, well, what niche do you play in? And I say, well, every client's different. And we deal with them individually. And I'm recognizing that for all the years that I defended that position and advocated for that position, that just seeing what's going on in the marketplace, what I've recognized is let's say somebody comes in like you and they say, these are the five markets or the five niches or the five areas that I work in. And you make that front and center in your marketing so people can see. Richard Nongard does A, B, C, D, and E. Now, F and G are actually more likely to come to you and say, hey, do you also do F and G? Than they are to find somebody that says they do everyone. And say, right. oh, all right, so it looks like it looks like everybody's welcome here. Can I come in? They're actually more tempted and more interested when they see a barrier because nobody wants to be left out. So when they, there's that sense that they could get left out of something, they're more likely to raise their hand and say, hey, what about me? And the perfect example is when I used to run my perfect example is when I used to run radio ads for the hypnosis clinic. Um, and I would, you know, yeah, 30 seconds for a radio spot. I'd run an ad, you know, the, yeah. the Richard's Hypnosis Center, stop smoking, lose weight, uh, end anxiety, uh, feel better, uh, pre-surgical, post-surgical training, uh, discover lost objects, overcome your fear of flying, uh, call 555-1212. Uh, I wanted everything in the ad because I was afraid <laughs> they would miss something. Nobody ever responded. But when I created the ad that was only focused on, uh, hi, this is Richard with the Tulsa, uh, Tulsa, you know, with your Tulsa Stop Smoking Headquarters. I used to live in Tulsa, yeah. right? Uh, if you thought about quitting smoking or you tried other methods, um, uh, I'd love to have you come to 
my office so I can help you quit smoking. I'm Richard the Hypnotist, 555-1212, and uh, you can have an appointment tomorrow. And when I only ran smoking cessation ads, the weirdest thing happened. I got lots of calls for the single-purpose advertising rather than the general advertising. But I would get calls, but people said, well, I don't smoke, but I'm anxious, or, you know, I uh, I don't smoke, but I'm afraid to fly, or, you know, I don't exactly. smoke, but I'm, you know, I, can, can you help me with those things? And my practice went crazy. It was always busy with constant referrals. Yeah. that See, that right there is extremely interesting. As I said, it, you know, I've, I've amended my own point of view on some of these things. And another you know, place, and, and I've also argued that transformations are, can sometimes be extremely small, and it's just a matter of redirecting a conversation. Like, I can, like, uh, I can give you an example from one client where uh, the decision was made that all files that, you know, needed, to be trans, you know, needed to be transferred between team members using Dropbox instead of email because the client did not want their intellectual property being sent as email attachments. They wanted it to, to go through Dropbox. Now, there was one member of the team who needed to upload an audio file so that another member of the team could edit it and turn it into a podcast. And this team member had installed the Dropbox app on their, on their laptop, but it had become disconnected from Dropbox. And even though we had tried to explain this person, it looks like you uploaded it, but it didn't actually upload because it went to a complimentary folder on your local hard drive, but it didn't go to Dropbox because you got logged out of Dropbox. Click here to log in again. We couldn't get that message through. Uh, and so what happened is the person ultimately sent that file as an email attachment. Now, okay, MP3 file for a podcast is an email attachment. Even in 2018, that should raise a few things, right? And they start with, I, I just wanted you to see, I, I, sent, I, I, I sent it by email because uh, I wanted to cover my ass. And I said, wait, I was on this call and I said, wait, no, no, I'm not interested in your ass. Uh, if you want to cover your ass, wear baggy or sweatpants. The only conversation here should be, why can't I get this to upload via Dropbox? And refer back to all the times that I personally have said, check to make sure you're actually logged in. So, so the small transformation was, is we're not talking about ass-covering emails anymore. We're just not even having that conversation because the only right. conversation that fits there is, how do I – why is it that everybody else is uploading the Dropbox, but I can't seem to? And what do I need to do to get that on the Dropbox? That's it. Any other conversation is outside the transformation. And sometimes my experience, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is it has to start that small because that's where you start to incrementally adjust the thinking. You know, in any business, it's always a small change that adds up. Um, and then our personal life as well. If we want to be a more effective leader, a more successful entrepreneur, um, rather than trying to conquer all the goals, why not just set some intentions instead? It's far more effective than goal setting, and it's something that can be done today. And I can make that small incremental change today into confidence, and confidence will translate into sales. Uh, I can step into creativity today. The creativity will 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 uh, will um, result in product development so yeah by making those small changes the things that i can do today um then we really create long-term success I, I i wrote a book titled viral leadership sees the power of now to create lasting transformation in business because a lot of people a lot of businesses a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, you know, they get a moment of success, but then they're not quite sure how do I make this sustaining. 
and it's made right. sustaining by engaging in teams, by creating a culture, and it's and uh, and um, moving forward by harnessing this moment and the assets we have right now, not what we hope to have in the future. All right. So let's take that to the subconscious level because the subconscious is where a lot of the action is. What would you say is the top way to retrain your subconscious mind, uh, whether it comes to business leadership, whether it comes to setting intentions, whether it comes to how you move forward and get things done? My routine is real simple. When I get in the shower, the, the instructions on the shampoo tell you, lather it up on your hair, wait two minutes, and then rinse it off. And nobody actually does that. But I started right. to do it because I started to use those two minutes in the shower as uh, as a way to reprogram my subconscious mind for the day by using that time to set an intention. Is my intention to be trustworthy today? Is my intention to be confident? Is it to be creative? Is my intention to be happy? Is my intention to be wealthy? What's my intention? And then I'll embrace that intention with an I am statement, right? So I get out of the shower and I look in the mirror and I'll just simply say to myself, you know, I am confident, or I am trustworthy, or I am uh, wealthy, or I am whatever it is. And the great thing about that way of affirming um, uh, affirming um, intentions to our subconscious mind is that nobody else can say I am for me. I'm the only one who can say that. Whereas a goal is often something that other people tell us we should have. It's not something that's owned. And so I can act on that intention. When I, when I leave my house in the morning, I step over the threshold of the garage door and into the, uh, uh, from the, from the laundry room into the garage door, and I envision myself stepping into the intention that I've set for myself for the day. When I look back at times where in the past I may have set a lot of goals, I discover that by activating the intentions, I wildly exceed any expectations I had for myself. And that right. is, a very practical way of reprogramming our subconscious mind away from the anxiety of goals and the demands of others, which is what goals really are, and into um, my own greatest abilities, my own giftedness. Yeah, the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Because here's the thing about here's the thing about to-do lists. For instance, we're talking about goals. They're often expressed in these things called to-do lists. Uh, if you've ever tried them, have you ever noticed that you never get more than halfway through, no matter how many things you take off the list? Absolutely, and there's two reasons why. One, you realize that what you set out to do became unimportant because you did something else. Yeah. And two, you add to the list the things that are urgent and uh, probably unimportant to go back to uh, some habits of highly difficult people because the phone and the email is dictating our lives rather than our deepest intention our values, or um, our, our own inner guide. Wow. So basically, what we find ourselves doing, it comes down to letting other people set your urgencies without realizing it, or we come up with things that are not even important. See, in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy, I actually repeat one of the subchapters twice in two different parts of the book. I repeat the same subchapter twice because it's that important. And the gist of it is to look at everything you're doing in your business and in your life and ask, do I have to? I mean, literally, do I have to? What happens if I just don't do this? And think about that critically. And what you will expose are more likely or most likely two things. Number one, how much stuff you just don't even have to do at all. 
And number two, uh, how, by setting aside what you think you're supposed to do, you actually end up innovating more effective, more efficient, and more forward-moving ways of doing things. You know, the perfect example of it, it goes back to learning Chinese. So here's a sentence that's actually on my computer, on my screen right now. Anytime teams are being merged or companies are being merged, we lose a sense of equilibrium and security. Right? That's a sentence right. something I wrote. The articles in here are, of course, are, or, are, uh, of, and. So if yeah. you take the articles out, so when I was learning Chinese, something I learned is there are no articles, right? How, how do you have a language without articles? That doesn't make any sense. But if you take right. the articles out of our language, it still makes sense. So uh, let me read that sentence without the articles. Anytime teams being merged, companies being merged, uh, we lose a sense, equilibrium, security. Okay, so you still understand the exact – it doesn't change the meaning. It sounds weird to us because it's missing the articles, but it doesn't change the meaning of the sentence one bit. And we should always be looking – yeah, we are looking looking for – what we're looking for is we're looking for the fastest route to, to, to clear out the clutter. I think what holds people back from success in entrepreneurship is, is the noise, the clutter. It's, it's all of, all of the demands of other people. You know, the, um, the most irritating thing in my life is Facebook Messenger because for, for years <laughs> it could keep business off of Facebook Messenger and now everybody uses it for business. So, so, you know, I've lost the battle. Okay. But, Facebook Messenger, just like a text message, is literally psychologically the exact same thing to us as somebody coming up behind us and tapping us on the shoulder. It's impossible not to turn around, which is why we text and drive, which is why we Facebook and drive. Because if somebody's tapping you on the shoulder, you have to look around to see who it is. And so I've had to learn to have a productive day. I need to have my Facebook Messenger notifications off. And the reason why is, I have my scheduled time when I go back and reply to those customers or people that might have sent me a message on Facebook. Text messaging. I actually have now turned off my text messaging notification. Most people, they have to go to a a technological addiction treatment program to even be willing to turn off the notifications on their text messages. But I've done that so that I can be far more productive and I'm now in control of when I respond to messages. It's like the 1980s again. The 1980s were so cool. Somebody called us, and they left a message on our tape answering machine. And when we got back to the phone, then we listened to the messages, and then we sat down and we called everybody back. It worked fine then, and believe it or not, it still works fine now. And the reason why? Everyone else still answers their phone at your beckoning call even when you're choosing to talk to them on your time rather than their time. Yeah. And yeah, this is, this is something that, and for some reason, this same thing has been coming up in episode after episode, of the business creators radio show lately. Very interesting is that, you, you know, in the old days you could leave somebody a voicemail and if they hadn't got back to you by the next day or the day after you could say, Hey, uh, you know, why didn't you call me back? Well, and uh, that person would maybe get all uh, – they, you know, maybe they'd say, well, I never got your message. Or, oh, well, you know, I've been busy and uh, I kept meaning to – or whatever. But now if you go to somebody, if you left them a voicemail yesterday and you say, hey, why didn't you call me back? They're going to look at you like you have three heads like, wait a minute. 
you left that voicemail yesterday. That's 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 dead. That doesn't exist anymore. Right. That's I mean, which which but, shows how fast things are moving. You, you mentioned things that we can get rid of, and uh, one of the things that I got rid of was voicemail. So when you call my phone, there's no voicemail. It's funny people then send me a Facebook message or text message and say, "Hey, something's wrong with your phone." There's no voicemail. <laughs> um, there's absolutely no reason to have voicemail in 2019. One, because people are going to message you anyway uh, on Facebook and or um, Twitter and or text messaging. Two, the miracle of caller ID, I already know they called. So if it was important, I already know I need to call Adam Hobby back, right? Because I right. saw your message. That's what caller ID told me. It said I missed a call right. from you. I do not need you or, or, or stale messages. Saturday Night Live had a skit years ago that I loved. That was about stale news, you know, because, you know, the, uh-huh. the, 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 the news was from yesterday. Today's newspaper is really yesterday's news, right? That always kind of stuck with me. So a, a typical voicemail message is, uh, hey, Adam, uh, this is Richard. I'm over here stuck on traffic on the 215, but uh, I'll be there in, in, in 30 minutes. Well, you couldn't answer the phone. So when you actually get around to listening to your voicemail, I'm no longer in that place, and you probably have already met with me. And so the voicemail just is a waste of time and effort. So I eliminated voicemail. Uh, it was my when I had teenagers. My kids are now in their twenties, or they're all adults now. But when they it was when they were teenagers, and I eliminated the voicemail because I I just didn't need use uh, stale messages anymore. It was a waste of yeah. my time and productivity. Yeah, allow me to jump in here for one second here. So let's say you were stuck on the two fifteen, and you and I were supposed to meet at two o'clock, and you were going to be here around two fifteen. Now, if I'm already sitting there waiting for you at one forty five, and uh, I somehow managed to miss your call. I'm thinking the only reason he could be possibly calling when we're supposed to be meeting in 15 minutes is to tell me he's running late. That's the only possible reason. So if right. I miss your call, 9 out of 10, I already know why you're calling. So you actually don't even need to leave me a voicemail. If it's important for me enough to confirm what's going on, I can call you back, and I won't even have to say, hello, is Richard there? Or, hey, Richard, I'll just as soon as you answer, I'll say, uh, how late are you going to be? Because yeah, I already exactly. know. I already know, or you, or you, or you could even answer the phone and say, uh, you, you might when you answer the phone, you might not even say hello, or you might not even say Richard Nongard speaking. You might say, I'm, "I'll be there in 15," and that's the yep. whole conversation. Yep, absolutely. So back to and, the cultural issues that um, yeah, uh, emerging teams, because I, I, I know we promised the listeners we talked a little bit about it. I, I got a couple yeah. ideas here that I think are really important, especially in mergers or acquisitions. So if you're a small entrepreneur and you are successful and you end up buying up somebody else, now you have to create a common language among those merging teams. You know, you've seen it, though, even within a company where the – install department uses different uh, acronyms and language than the uh, than the sales department does um, and 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 I think that one of the ways that we can merge cultures between departments or between companies is by developing that common language um, and that's something that's often overlooked but something really important in order to have clarity of communication and then the other thing is is that people people love ritual um, you know, the, 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 there's a reason why, you know, religions persist thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's not necessarily even because that particular religion or that particular religion was correct. In fact, sometimes I think to myself, how can all those people believe certain things in certain 
you know, in certain religious groups. Um, it, it's really not even about the belief. It's it's actually about about ritual. It's important to people. It brings familiarity, and companies have to create team building rituals. Um, so often companies are, are so busy growing, especially in a dynamic economy like ours, that they only create those rituals on an annual basis, the annual awards meeting, um, rather than creating even the small rituals along the way where there can be recognition, where there can be uh, a shared story or narrative told. And that's another way of, of merging cultures, creating a shared narrative, drawing on the positives in each contributor. Whether it's a department or whether it's merging companies, there's a process called appreciative inquiry that um, uh, you know turned around huge companies from from John Deere to uh, British Airways uh, when they were having difficulty, but it's been adopted by many nonprofit organizations, small organizations, uh, as a way of creating a shared narrative to increase contributions to help them to define their goals. And that translates again back to the guy who's got a pizza shop, or the the lady who's got her, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, gift shop, or, or or automobile repair shop, or whatever it is that she owns. Yeah, yeah, that's all. That's all very true. So what I'd like to do now, and you know, that's great that you, you shared that with us. Is um, I want to um, I want to get a little bit more into. Skills, you know, because we share the difference between goal setting versus intention setting. And since we're still on the topic of leadership, I want to get into uh, something that I've heard you say a number of times, which is that skills can be taught, loyalty cannot. And that's not exactly a brand new concept, but your spin on it is very interesting. So let's share that with our readers. You know, I think I, I think that the most important decisions we can make about the culture of a growing organization are who we hire. So I think less important during a job interview is what are your skills? Because frankly, you know, unless they're dumb, I can teach them. I, I can I can teach or find somebody to teach any skills that are needed within my organization. The real question is, um, what are your values? Um, what is your vision? Uh, what is it that drives you? Well, how, how do you how do you uh, create passion in you know the uh, the positions that that you've held that have brought you joy at work? And of course, one of the traits I'm looking for is of course loyalty because um, every business owner has had this experience where somebody who they've hired has either been disloyal by stealing customers when they go out on their own. That's horrible. Uh, or they've had uh, had the experience where um, somebody came in uh, to an organization, money was spent on training, whatever. They didn't steal customers. That they moved on because they weren't really loyal to to uh, to the idea. Now, again, sometimes people don't have loyalty because we haven't co-created the vision. Notice I didn't say share the vision. Too many yeah. businesses try to share. Here is what uh -huh. our vision is. You buy into it. We need to co-create vision with our employees. Uh, and when we co-create vision, uh, then we create loyalty. But loyalty is uh, a personality characteristic. And because it's a personality characteristic, it is probably a, a lifelong constant. And I can't train the core aspects of loyalty. So I need to be screening for that in my hiring process, or maybe it's not an employee, maybe it's a partner that I'm going to be working with. Uh, maybe yeah. not even a partner in the company, but somebody, uh, another colleague who I'm going to build a business relationship with. And again, 
loyalty is something that I'm looking for because skill, I'll take the unskilled person who's loyal over the person and appreciative uh, over the person who has no appreciation and no loyalty, but is the best at what they do. You know, you just made me think of something. I know we have about eight minutes here and I want to give you a minute at the end as um, this makes me think of people who express frustration within their companies about how things work. If they say that something's inefficient or they're irritated because they're not getting the support they need or they think the company's wasting its time. And uh, the first thing, I was taught this a long time ago, if you're bringing a complaint, bring a solution, number one. So that could be a teaching Absolutely. moment is if you, if, you, if you have a complaint here, good, you have a complaint. So if you were in a position to change this, what would you bring to the table to change it? So that, ought, that, that already creates a shift of uh, a contribution mode. And then you need to look at how people react and how you react to people when they complain about the processes of how things are working. Uh, I, a few months ago with one of my uh, consulting clients, uh, I had a situation where uh, due to that same thing we mentioned earlier about the email hell, some important things got dropped just because they got lost in all the email hell. And part of it involved me having to do something twice because the information I was supposed to get had actually, been, had actually arrived, but it had never been noticed and never delivered to me because people were so focused on everybody CCing everybody and covering their asses to make right. sure that they were on record as having inquired as to the progress of the situation. And, uh, you know, the question came up like, wow, you got a little vehement there. And I said, please understand, it's because... I'm so dedicated to the success of this thing that I'm not going to idly stand by while we sabotage ourselves by covering our asses with a bunch of CCs on emails that we're not reading anyway. For all these people going on record as having checked in on the progress, the progress happened and you didn't notice. So, yeah, I'm going to raise my voice because I care. And when you have somebody who has that energy, it's a matter of showing them how to channel that energy and make it more of a positive thing, more of a forward-thinking thing, and understanding that sometimes if somebody lets off a little steam, well, yeah, when you get too much pressure, that's why they have these things called pressure valves. They're designed to let off a little steam so the thing doesn't blow. And, and one of the ways to empower a team is to let them come up with the solutions. I mean, it, it sounds simple but uh, again I, I tell people don't don't bring me the problem without bringing me the solution because that's why I hired you and right. I, I have trust in you uh, I'm telling them that I believe that you are smart enough that you're good good enough and doggone it the people like you and so <laughs> so I, I have full faith in your ability to solve a problem without having to bring me into it so instead why don't you tell me there was a problem and what your solution was and I'm gonna smile um, and, and that's really empowering to people because you're, 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 you're valuing their leadership abilities and you're creating co, co-leaders as a result. Right. Right, right. Very, very true. So, uh, so let's, let's see here. I think we have time to cover one more topic here. Yeah, we have five minutes, so let's spend a couple minutes on one more thing that I'm really hoping that we can get to. And, uh, again, I'd like to circle back to goals. I think this would be a great place to get off the train. So why are smart goals not that smart, according to the research that you've seen and done? 
There's actually plenty of research that shows that smart girls aren't that smart. I know I'm a business heretic for saying that, but the reason why is really, number one, it produces anxiety. Oh, there's a goal. i got to get to it. It's usually somebody else's goal, as we talked about earlier. One of the other reasons why smart girls aren't that smart is the concept in psychology is called cognitive dissonance. And so as I get closer to the expiration of my goal, I become more distressed about not reaching the goal. So my natural inclination is to justify revising the goal downward so I can feel good about hitting the goal when the date comes. So maybe I didn't sell enough this month because the weather was bad or because I had to take two weekends off and go to my you know, kids' college graduations or whatever it is that people do. So now when I think about it, let me revise the goal down because that goal was unrealistic at the beginning of the month. And we revise our goals down so we can feel good about hitting the goal rather than feel yeah. bad about missing the goal. And it actually can become a downward spiral of mediocrity because um, yeah. it, 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 my next goal is going to be less. Um, and then there's another element that uh, that people forget, and that is sometimes goal setting at, uh, companies who have their employees set targeted goals actually hit those targeted goals. It, it helps to hit the goals, but sometimes it's at, an, uh, at a um, – uh, sometimes it's at, at, at an ethical expense. You know, Sears ran into this years ago in their automotive department when they reached all their sales goals but sold customers a bunch of services that they didn't need. Uh, Wells Fargo had the same scenario, the same situation where uh, uh, their managers, in order to hit their goals, were actually opening up accounts. But they were opening up accounts that, uh, as I understand it, uh, customers weren't fully aware of uh, signing up for. Um, so sometimes there can either be ethical pitfalls in, in goal setting. And, again, goals are something that somebody else sets for me. They are what I, they are the expectations I believe others want me to have. And by setting intentions, I have full ownership. I don't have to wait for the future. They produce excitement, not anxiety. And when I look back at the times when I used to set goals, I always wildly exceed my expectations by setting daily intentions, stepping into them with each step of the day. Yeah, very true. So we're at the very top here, and I wanted to give you just uh, a minute here. For anybody who's been listening, and I know people have been listening and getting excited about how they can experience some of these transformations, uh, what do you have for our audience today? What, what will be the next step? Well, on my website at viralleadership.com, uh, that's viralleadership.com. Right at the yep. bottom is an ebook, a settled community, culture, and identity, and a specific strategies for leading your way to success, both personally and professionally. And, and anybody can access this right there at Viral Leadership at the bottom of the page. Um, at viralleadership.com, there's also information about my, of course, keynote speaking and sales training. I do a lot of keynote speaking. I do a lot of sales training. But I also just love hearing from people. There's an infographic uh, on the website uh, on leadership, which I think is pretty interesting. There's a, a link to my podcast called Leadership That Makes You Money. There are um, resources that I've published, including my newest book, Viral Leadership, which is available on Amazon or really any any book retailer. And um, the great thing about the book is it's now available in an audio version on Audible and uh, and on iTunes. So if you want to listen to your book rather than read the, read the book, uh, that's an option now with the book Viral Leadership. Chris DeSetta, who's the current CEO of, uh, of Hilton Worldwide, wrote a blurb for the front cover, and the Ford was written by the uh, former uh, uh, CEO of General Electric Capital. And so... Lots of people love this book, and it's been truly helpful for 
entrepreneurs as well as uh, corporate folks. Wow, that's fantastic. So we are right here at the top. Uh, that's ViralLeadership.com, folks, ViralLeadership.com. Richard Nongard, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education, believe me. Well, it's been awesome talking to you, and now I'm glad to meet a new neighbor. All right. For everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive in the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.